could stand with me and turn in the book of Hebrews to chapter 10. We're going to read verses 11 through 18. Verse 11 reads, And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering he has perfected for all times those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us for it after saying, This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these... There's no longer any offering for sin. Let's pray. Lord, we just thank you again for the opportunity to look into your word for all truth, for all wisdom, for life itself. We pray, God, that you would illuminate in our minds and our hearts what you would have us to hear, to see, to understand the great riches of glory of Christ. Thank you during this Advent season that we have an opportunity to reflect on the fact that he has come. I pray that you would guide me and help me to preach the word in spirit and in truth, hide me behind the cross, that we'd leave today reflecting on the goodness of Jesus. pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. As we reflect on the season, this season of Advent, we're able to rest in this testimony that Christ has come, reflecting on this reality that, you know, may resonate with, with us at different times, and sometimes it may become kind of too normal or regular for us to even marvel at it anymore, but... Advent is the season, it is the time to rest in this reality that Christ has come. Emmanuel, literally meaning God with us, is the reason that we can truly celebrate during Christmas. It's the reason that we can reflect on this season and have some sense of meaning, a depth of purpose in celebration. The arrival of this child gives us a tangible hope in the promises of God. The arrival of Christ gives us a tangible hope, something we can hold on to, something we can grasp and truly have confidence in, because Christ has come. And as we read through the book of Hebrews, we find no empty possibilities, nor do we find any distant legends that go unfulfilled. We find the explicit revelation of Jesus Christ, our rock and our, and our salvation, and this time during Advent is no less of that revelation 
It's no lesser version of that because we reflect on Christ as a baby. Because the one who came, the one who we recognize as the King of kings and the Lord of lords, is this baby. This picture of bare, raw humanity coming through a birth canal into the world. This is our King. This is our Savior. This is our salvation. Christ literally came for us. And all the promises that we see in the book of Hebrews, everything that the writer proclaims, in all these things we must remember that the incarnation makes all of this possible. In this baby, in this Christ child, we find that all of God's promises are yes and amen. Let heaven, nature, angels sing. As Tony said last week, we have good news of great joy. The same way that the angels proclaim this to the shepherds on that day, the heavens filled with rejoicing, we celebrate together the same heart and mind. He came, he lived, he died. He rose one time and somehow fixed in the eternal plane of reality is this momentary conclusion that everything that he has done once is sufficient. One time all these things were done. It's sufficient forever. We celebrate that he was born one time. We rest and that he lived perfectly one time. We trust that he died one time. We rejoice that he is risen. He rose again one time. There are no repeat acts. There are no prior models. There's only Jesus one time for all time. Galatians 4.4 speaks of Christ's coming at this fullness of time, where we find that everything revolves around this moment of fulfillment. Galatians 4.4 literally says, Christ born of a woman is this fulfillment, this fullness of all time culminates Christ being born of a woman. And what he would accomplish would never be done again. It would never need to be done again. That's why we can center on this moment, this coming of this child, because this life that, would, that he would live, this sacrifice that he would make for us all, would be something that we would reflect on for all of human history and throughout eternity. And there are many debates about the Christophanies in the Old Testament where there are pictures of Christ in the Old Testament where we can say, well, no, it wasn't just one time. It was also these other times, but let's leave that there. 
There are considerations of modern personality prophets that capture the minds and the affections of, of some of those in this time where we're placing significance on a person who seems to have ascended above the normal plane of humanity. They're, they're extra important. They sit on a pedestal for us in our minds and our hearts, and they're memorable because of that. All these discussions and maybe debates about the significance of other individuals, and the presence of prominence in other people throughout human history, they should begin to quiet when we take close examination at the life of Christ. He is a historical figure whose life is authoritatively outlined by the far and wide testimonies of holy men and women in Scripture. To take a look at who Jesus is, how he comes, how he lives, the sacrifice that he makes for us, and the power of the resurrection should quiet all of the comparisons of anybody else that we'd like to set as a parallel to who he is. This theme that we see in Hebrews, amidst all the technical jargon that we all may struggle with. I struggle with at times, and sometimes if I'm not struggling with understanding it, I'm struggling to convey it to other people. All of this technical language of the covenant in Hebrews should just bring us to this very simple conclusion. Christ came to tabernacle with man in order to build for us a tabernacle with God. I'd like to look at today's text, Hebrews 10, 11 through 18, with three considerations in mind. Number one, the footstool. Number two, the filling of the Spirit. Number three, the forgiveness of sin. First, the footstool. Verse 11 tells us that the priest would stand every day offering sacrifices that would never purge sin. If you see that verse, you may take away from it this sense of frantic interaction with sacrifice. They're standing every day offering these sacrifices that would never purge sin. As we looked at this design of the tabernacle and how the priests interact with the sacrifices, there is this intrinsic fear or anxiety in this covenant where you're scurrying about with all of these pieces of furniture and, and items that had, had been given extra significance in light of the sacrifices that you're offering before God. There's a sense of fear in that you must get it exactly right. A sense of anxiety that if one part of this is out of order, you have displeased God. But as we continue and move into verse 12, I like how the King James Version puts it. Verse 12 in, in the ESV says, but when Christ, but the King James Version speaks in a different tone, says, but this man, all the priests who scurry about and do these sacrifices and present these offerings that will never, ever save or purge sin, but this man, 
It gives us a sense of the audacity of his power and majesty as he walks in the face of this covenant that can do nothing to say, but this man. It tells you this man is on another level. It tells you that what you're entering into when you engage with the reality of this text is something that we could have never provided on our own. This man has the audacity to express such a degree of power and dominion in one sacrifice. One man, not a bunch of priests trying to do something over and over again that will never satisfy, but one man does something once that forever satisfies. And then what does he do? He sits down at the right hand of God. Maybe you're already seeing the contrast from one verse to the next where every priest stands daily in this picture of fear and anxiety, but what this one man does affords him the opportunity to sit down. Just like Tony talked about last week, it is finished. This is what his posture is telling us. Nothing else needs to be done. There's no more scurrying about offering powerless sacrifices. What Christ has accomplished is enough. Verse 13 continues to where we get the idea, we're presented with not just the posture of sitting down and the power of what Christ has accomplished, but we see this footstool he met with the phrase, waiting from that time. I understand waiting from that time does not denote that something that should have been accomplished has not yet been accomplished. This exaltation of Christ already has happened. He is the champion. He is the king, the forever exalted high priest Any of the previous texts that we have read in this chapter have already come to that conclusion. His enemies are crushed, and yet they will be crushed. Again, we're met with the already but not yet. His enemies are crushed, and yet they will be crushed. This is how we interact with God's promises. God doesn't just say things and then we have to wait to see if he comes through. He's already been making a case since the beginning of human history that what he says not only happens in time, but has already happened in the expanse of eternity. It is finished, Christ says on the cross. He doesn't say it will be finished when we get to 2017 and there's some people at Cornerstone Community Church who decide to believe for the first time or decide to be convinced. He says it is finished back then. It's done. Some of you, and it's a very sad time that we live in where I feel like I have to qualify and maybe with this statement, but some of you may have seen the Ten Commandments with Charlton Heston. I don't know if it's still an American institution, but I know I grew up on that. 
One of the characters, of course, maybe depending on your point of view, that, but the character that stood out to me was Ramesses, the, ph- the pharaoh. And whenever something was going to happen, usually on the negative side, something that was going to hurt Moses in some way, he'd say this phrase that always sticks with me. So let it be written, so let it be done. And he dramatically walks out. Now you get a sense that when he says that, it's going to happen. He's not having a discussion. He's saying, so let it be written, so let it be done. Now take that one moment where you are convinced by great acting from Yul Brenner and multiply it by a million and see what God has said and understand that it will be done. The footstool exists to explain to us that all the enemies that have resisted anything of God's redemptive plan are to be crushed. Hebrews 2 and 14 tells us explicitly that Christ's sacrifice destroyed the one who held the power of death, who was Satan. This footstool is in place for every power that resists God's gracious, redemptive purposes. You see, Jesus had enemies before he was born. He had enemies while he was alive. He had enemies as he gives up the ghost on the cross. He has enemies that remain even after he has ascended. It's interesting to read from Romans chapter 16, verses 20, verse 20, where Paul is encouraging these Christians in Rome with this statement, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. You must realize that those of us who trust in Christ adopt this victorious language where we're not just speaking of something we're anticipating and it's not quite fulfilled, so we we struggle with confidence, but the victorious in Christ speak as if we know that he has victory over all of his enemies. This footstool is not just an, an added piece of furniture to help him be more comfortable as he sits on the throne. He's actively crushing all of his enemies. Anyone who resists Christ is crushed. That's the footstool. Next, the filling of the Spirit. Now, beyond all these teachings around spiritual gifts, and there are a lot that we will not talk about today, I'd like to submit to you that one of the clearest demonstrations of God's power at work in you, in me, is being filled with the intention to serve God. Being filled with the intention to serve God. What is verse 16 and verse 17 saying? This this is quoting Jeremiah from the past, but what, what is this saying to us? One of the clearest demonstrations of God's power is to be filled with delight in God's Word. I 
But to Tony's point last week, it should never be said that the redeemed of the Lord are missing joy. If you are filled with this delight in God's Word, God has written His laws on your mind and on your hearts. And so when you hear Paul call out in Philippians chapter 4 and say, rejoice in the Lord always, again I say rejoice. You don't cringe or you don't fight that so much to say you can't understand why that's necessary. There's something that has happened in you that provokes an obedience, a desire to see that word fulfilled in your life to where your response is to rejoice. Delighting in that law, delighting in that command is a work of the Spirit. James tells you to count it all joy in the midst of trials and tribulations. Maybe you're not facing the same kinds of challenges that James was in his day, but the end of the day is that you are to count it joy in the midst of times that are difficult. The filling of the Spirit is to have a transformation of will and intention by which you can truly testify with certainty that your life is not your own. You agree and it resonates with you to read Galatians 2, chapter, chapter 2, verse 20, where Paul says, the life that I now live is a life that's governed by faith in the Son of God. The fact that he gave himself for me his covenant says that his law is written on your mind and your heart. And all of these beautiful truths this writer of Hebrews gives, he's been building this case for a long time throughout all these chapters, all of these, this wisdom, all of this, this, this wonderful truth that this writer has been giving us. It falls on deaf ears if the Spirit is not the witness Verse 15 literally says the Holy Spirit bears witness. It's not just us receiving the information and deciding whether or not this is profitable. This is the Spirit bearing witness and saying this is true. This is glorious. This should provoke joy in you, in your being. We realize that we can't cultivate our own peace and rest. But when the Holy Spirit bears witness empowers us to trust in this truth. There's a different response. This is not just an individual or I'm talking to individual people. There is that reality, but there's also this universal reality where the entire body of Christ is responding with a yes and an amen to what God has already established. If he has written the laws in our hearts, in our minds. It is he who has secured our joy. And the angels filled the sky and confirmed that news that was supposed to provoke great joy when the angels filled the sky and shared with the shepherds a glimpse of heaven. 
They proclaim glory to God in the highest, peace among those with whom he is pleased. The people who he has made his covenant with, peace to you. There is a filling of that fruit from the Spirit. There is peace in knowing that Christ has done it all. It's confirmed, and the Spirit fills us with his truth. You don't have to conjure up this kind of joy that looks like the right response. You can refer back to things that help this this idea resonate. For me, it's an old song I used to sing in in my church as a youngster. It literally just said, this joy that I have, the world didn't give it to me. The world didn't give it, and the world can't take it away. And when that's real, when it's something that you know that there's, there's, there's nothing horizontally that could have given you this type of joy. There's nothing here that provokes this kind of inspiration. But there's something greater and more powerful that has captured you. And the joy you respond with literally comes from God. Lastly, the forgiveness of sin. Now on a, a technical level, many struggle with the doctrine of atonement. And there's different reasons. A lot kind of points to the sacrifice. But even in that, that technical difficulty of maybe understanding some of the terminology surrounding the atonement, I think one of the most understated struggles in that is this struggle with the promise of total forgiveness. Total forgiveness. Which I believe leads to this practical shared human difficulty that that we all struggle with on some level, which is just trying to understand how we are to forgive. How we are to forgive one another. And that struggle with who we are as human beings, it creates this chasm between what we understand about who we are and what we are to understand about who God is. You see, we, we wrestle with the notion of forgiveness because we don't, we don't resonate with what God declares here in verse 17 where he says, I will remember their sins and lawless deeds no more. We don't resonate with that as human beings. We, we can find ourselves adopting this phrase where, you know, I'll forgive you, but I'll never forget. And, and that's true. I mean, you know, we are, we are human beings. We may forgive something, but we don't forget it. So what are we to do with, I will remember your sins and lawless deeds no more? Okay, God, all right, calm down. I don't know what that looks like. You will remember them no more. I mean, you are all-seeing, all-knowing. You have all knowledge. How can you remember them no more? You remember them, you just don't want to tell me about them. And this is what we struggle with. A lot of times, we bring our baggage to the Bible. 
We bring our struggle and our limitations to what Scripture says, and then we impose upon what this text is telling us, and then we come away with our conclusion, and then we wonder why our faith is broken when we need it. But if we turn, if we truly have repented and we turn from everything that we thought was true and we look at the face of Christ and we behold Him in His Word and we see what He says, we find a glorious truth. He's quoting the prophet Jeremiah. And we went through this before in Hebrews chapter 8. He tells prophet, I will remember their sins and lawless deeds no more. We all will wrestle with that on some level. We can't put it together that this God who knows all, sees all, offers this kind of grace. I'm not asking you to believe me. I'm not asking you to believe inflections in my voice or even my ability to construct words in some way to convince you. I'm asking you to believe what the text says. This word that has been preserved for us to read now to find comfort and has done the same for millions of human beings who've trusted in this word. The wrestle we have often puts us at, back at verse 11. We find ourselves offering these perpetual sacrifices before the Lord in hopes of salvation from our own fears. It's kind of two different extremes on the spectrum where we, we feel like we, we do something that revokes the promise of God, and the extreme tells us that we need to get resaved all over again because it's too bad what we have done. We have to come before God acknowledging that the, the depth of this sin has to be dealt with, and, and it almost interacts with God in some way that it, there's, there's a new kind of salvation that has to happen. It's one extreme, and then on the other side, another extreme is where we become numb to our sin where we become indifferent to sin in general. It's not necessarily trusting in what the Word of God says. It's just not caring. And we have this horizontal view of forgiveness. We find ourselves relying on Sacrifices that cannot satisfy. Promises that will not sustain. And sometimes we may be drawn to this idea where we do something wrong or egregious or something has been done to us and all we need to do is forgive ourselves. Forgive yourself so that you can move on. I want to, to make that distinction because what that offers you will not satisfy. This is why what Christ offers goes far beyond what the human 
capacity of understanding could, could even draw conclusion about. What Christ is offering tells us that we are not sufficient judges. We are not the people who should be put in position to forgive in such a way that satisfies what needs to be satisfied in the act of sin, in the act of transgression, in the act of a lawlessness that has reached the high heavens itself. What Christ has done, only what Christ has done, is enough. Therefore, His forgiveness is what we should seek. His forgiveness is what we have obtained as we trust in this sacrifice, because He truly and literally will remember the sins no more. Where it's okay to go back to verse 11. It's okay to, to see what that is. As long as we make the appropriate progression again and we find that there's this one man who offers one sacrifice for all time. He sits down at, on the right hand of God and his enemies become his footstool. It's okay to revisit that. It's okay to find yourself scurrying about and saying, oh my gosh, what am I going to do? What sacrifice can I offer? How can I obtain this forgiveness? How can I feel better because I'm struggling with forgiveness and unforgiveness? How about we revisit the greatness and the glory of Christ? Rest in that again. Find his sacrifice. Find its sufficiency. Revisit the fact that it is finished and have peace with God. Have peace with people. We'll find this new covenant of victorious, renewed persons transformed by the filling of God's laws and delights. In this new covenant, we don't need a priest to continue to offer those sacrifices because positionally, we'll never change. We're interacting with God in a different way. Relationally, asking for forgiveness is not asking to redo something that has already been done, but because his laws have been written on your hearts. When you do sin, you care. When you do sin, you're convicted. And when you confess to the Lord, you find his glad, good tidings of great joy all over again. You find that rest. You find that peace. You find that joy. You don't lose it ever. no more scurrying around anxiously. Christ came one time, and he paid it all. Hallelujah. There is no longer any offering. Nothing in our hands we bring. Only to the cross we cling. Hallelujah. The word of the Lord literally sets us free. We remember that what he did one time covered all of it. Whatever sin you as a believer are wrestling with, you don't need 
to revisit it in the sense that there is a new sacrifice that has to be offered. The God of peace has forgotten it under the banner of Christ's sacrifice. He will not remember it. It's washed clean. You are his, and you no longer need this reminder of your sin because he has washed it white as snow. And if you do not know this peace, if you don't have this sense of his law being written on your hearts and you feel overworked in this interaction with the Christian faith, I cannot offer you the solution to that. I cannot walk into the deep canvases of your heart and your mind and convince you to do something different. I cannot produce for you what's promised. But I know who can. And I would call you to interact with the God of peace. I would call you to look at the nativity picture in a different way. Christ has come. He did not remain a baby. His presence here promises something that goes far beyond the scene there, but it gives us a reality to what we celebrate. He offers this gift. As we are those who have sinned and committed lawless deeds, but because Jesus came, he offered one time for all time, a single sacrifice for our sins. And to throw our trust in him is enough. So I encourage you to exhale. Forgiveness is yours. The God of peace fights for you. He crushes his enemies. And he lives to remind you of that over and over and over again until we are met with the tangible reality of heaven meeting earth, the glory of the Son of God being visible before us. We are transformed from these wretched, weak bodies, and we rejoice with him for all time. That's the promise that we lay before you. And if you are confident enough to believe the promises of people who will fail you, how much more should you be confident in the promise of someone who will never leave you nor forsake you, never fail you, always faithful, always true? He reminds us of this over and over again. One of those reminders is time of communion. When we reflect on this, we remember the sacrifice. And we all agree that one time was enough. We remember that sacrifice, that blood was poured out, his body was broken, and we take that together. Brothers and sisters in Christ, I ask that you reflect on that in a worshipful way. I pray the Spirit works in you a sense of joy knowing that this is finished. And those of you who do not know Jesus, those of you who may come to church just because it feels like 
a peaceful place. It feels like you can escape from the realities of this world. I don't offer a, an escape. I want to offer you something that goes far beyond what anyone could ever do to you here. I want to offer you Jesus himself. And I ask that you'd allow the communion elements to pass and that you take upon Christ, that you would believe him, that you would trust him, and the God of peace would sustain you in this time. Let's pray. Lord, we just thank you. We're grateful for this perfect gift that you've given. Father, we thank you that you loved us enough to send your only son. That we can reflect during this season that he has come. Emmanuel, God with us not just a past tense reality, but he is with us because of what Christ has accomplished forever with us. I ask that you just continue to help us to rely and trust on this good news, that we'd find joy in it, we'd find peace, we'd find rest, that as you write the laws on our hearts and on our minds, that we find much joy, that we find love for others, that we rest in forgiveness, knowing that what you said can be counted on, that we can have confidence in your word. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.